12, we return this morning. Luke 12, where we'll pick up at verse 22. Jesus had been speaking to the disciples, you might remember, about fearless service to him. God, his Father, and theirs is, after all, the only one who must be feared. And fearing God, that is holding God with reverence and awe in their hearts, and living out of that faith in their holy but also deeply loving and trustworthy and faithful Heavenly Father, they would have nothing and no one else to fear. Nothing about which to be anxious. And just then, a voice from the crowd of thousands who had gathered around Jesus and his disciples breaks into the conversation with a cry, Teacher, tell my brother to defy the inheritance with me. It was a demand perfectly timed, uh, providing Jesus with the opportunity to bring home a lesson to the entire crowd there. Some people seek wealth, pursue it as if it were the key to life. And sometimes they're actually successful at accumulating some and have to build larger barns in his uh, story in order to store it all. But it comes to naught. They cannot keep it because eventually... Often sooner than he even imagines, a fool is separated from his money by death. What a waste. The greedy man worries about how to hold on to all his stuff. He has too much. But he's not the only one with problems and worries. The poor man who has nothing worries he doesn't have enough. And this might more likely have been the temptation for Jesus' disciples that day. They don't worry about bigger barns. They don't have anything to store. They wonder about where their next meal is going to come from. They're tempted to worry about about their next set of clothes. When these wear out that are on their backs, where will they find another set? Jesus knows this about them. He knows the weakness of their faith. So now he turns from addressing the crowds back to addressing his disciples in the hearing of the crowds, beginning at verse 22 with a lesson for them and for us. Let's pray. Father, teach us that lesson, we ask. Send your spirit upon us that we may learn it indelibly, receiving it in our hearts and living uh, out of it. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. And he said to his disciples, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat, nor about your body, what you will put on. For life is more than food, and the body more than clothing. Consider the ravens. They neither sow nor reap. They have neither storehouse nor barn. Yet God feeds them. Of how much More value are you than the birds. And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? If then you are not able to do as small a thing as that, why are you anxious about the rest? Consider the lilies, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass, 
which is alive in the field today and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, how much more will they clothe you, O you of little faith? Do not seek what you are to eat and what you are to drink, nor be worried, for all the nations of the world seek after these things, and your Father knows that you need them. Instead, seek his kingdom, and these things will be added to you. This week I heard a disc jockey on the radio between songs saying, We all want peace of mind. Give me peace of mind at all cost, whatever it takes. She was quoting the lyrics of a song she had just played, but she could relate, and we all can. We all want peace of mind. But there's a way to have peace of mind, and there's a way that leads to anything and everything but peace, and only serves to increase our anxiety. Now, apparently, there are lots and lots of people who've chosen that latter path. Anxiety is rampant today and reveals itself in many different ways. According to one website, the Anxiety Disorders Association of America, there's a website for everything, isn't there? Uh, Anxiety disorders, quote, are the most common mental illnesses in the U.S., and costs the U.S. more than $42 billion a year, almost one-third of the country's $148 billion uh, total mental health bill. More than $22 billion of those costs are associated with the repeated use of health care services. People with anxiety disorders seek relief from symptoms that mimic physical illnesses. People with anxiety disorders are three to five times more likely to go to the doctor and six times more likely to be hospitalized for psychiatric disorders than those who do not suffer from anxiety disorders. Now, I quote all of that stuff to you simply as the demonstration of the fact that even the world realizes that anxiety is a real problem and costly and destructive in consequence to real human beings. What the world does not understand, however, is that anxiety itself is actually symptomatic of a much deeper, more fundamental issue. Anxiety is a fallen condition that stems from our, from mankind's fall into sin. It is just one more way that our fallenness as a race reveals itself. The toll on body and spirit has been devastating. Fear has gripped us, body and soul, since the day Adam and Eve first fearfully hid themselves in the garden from God who was approaching. So how shall we find relief from fear? And anxiety. Or more to the point, how shall we put an end to our fears? We are, after all, under orders on this point. Jesus has not merely suggested that we stop being afraid, he's, doesn't, he's not passing along some uh, good advice, uh, some good idea, stop being fearful. 
This is a commandment. Do not be afraid. So now we have to obey. How shall we? Well, if you get on the internet, you can find all sorts of stress-relieving pharmaceuticals and herbal elixirs and aromatherapies and self-help programs and a thousand other suggestions for escaping from fear and anxiety. And some of them do provide a temporary escape. But that's just the problem, you see. They're temporary. And they all deal with the symptom, which is anxiety. They don't address the issue, the root issue from which anxiety springs. A warm bath, a drink of kava kava, a rendezvous with your spouse, uh, listening to relaxing music, breathing exercises, all of these things suggested to relieve stress, all of them making uh, people feel better for a little while, but only temporarily dealing with the symptom, not touching the disease. And we get closer, we begin to get closer to the core of the matter of fear when we remember this, that we are all All of us, we are seekers. We are all seekers. We've all been made that way, and we can't help it. We're all looking for something. Our lives are directed by some ambition, by some desire. What I mean is that we all have our hearts set on something, and that something is the main objective of our lives. It's what we seek What we seek is what we think about, it's what we pursue, it's what we live for. We're all seekers. Now Jesus reduces those two pursuits, uh, or those pursuits down to two basic possibilities. You can either, he says, seek the things of the world, things like, verse 29, what you are to eat, what you are to drink, which no doubt he means to serve as representative of everything that we might pursue on the earth. Cars, cash, clothes, house, vacations, bank accounts, fame, pleasure, uh, relationships, ease, all sorts of things. I, could say, I say you can either seek, let your heart be set on things of the world, or... You can seek, set your heart on, that is, the kingdom of God. Those are the two choices. You can either seek sustenance or you can seek the spiritual. That's another way we might say it. And which of those two pursuits you choose will result in a life marked either by anxiety and fear or by peace and contentment. People who are always reaching for the things of earth, seeking for what they can accumulate and enjoy for themselves, derive from earthly things, are also anxious people. You've met them. You've talked to them. People who are seeking money, whose hearts are always set on the pecuniary, are almost always certain there won't be enough. Or that the monetary system is going to fail. Or that the market's going to fall. They love to talk about how they're overtaxed and underpaid. They wonder whether their pension will continue into their old age, whether Social Security will be there for them or continue to be there 
in the mail. Seeking money, seeking things inevitably leads to that kind of worry and that kind of anxiety. Accumulating that many things leads to anxiety and worry. That's why Jesus begins by first telling us what not to seek. What not to seek. Verse 21, don't seek what you're to eat and what you're to drink. Don't, in other words, don't set your hearts on those things. Don't live for those things. He's essentially saying the same thing as in verse 22, where he connects the pursuit of these things and the worry that inevitably marks such a pursuit. I tell you, don't be anxious about your life, what you'll eat, nor about your body, what you'll put on, for life is more than food and the body more than clothing. And he gives us two solid grounds for not seeking them for not pursuing the things of earth, at least two, and both of them involve God. First, God knows what you need. Verse 30, for all the nations of the world, by which he means all the unbelievers, all those people who are outside of Christ, who have not salvation, have not Jesus as their Savior, they seek after these things. Remember that seeking is pursuing, your heart captivated, seeking after them. They, they seek after these things, and your father knows that you need them. In other words, unbelievers, the heathen, they chase after the things of earth. But you, Christian, you should be markedly different. Something should be obviously different about you that sets you apart. You should stand out and set up, stand set apart from unbelievers in this way. It should be clear to others that you are not like them. You're not always pursuing the almighty dollar, always concerned with earthly things, about getting and keeping and defending what's yours. An unconcern about these physical needs of life actually should should be yours, should distinguish you from those who have no such confidence in the Lord and and see themselves as left to their own devices. They don't know any better, in a sense, because they give no thought to God. Of course, the law is written on their hearts, but they've suppressed that. They have no relationship to God, at least not a saving relationship. They, They know of God, of course they do but they do not know him. And they certainly do not know him like you do as your heavenly father. He's not, you know, a distant deity, disinterested in your needs. He knows them. He knows what you need better than you know what you need. After all, he made you and he designed you and he understands you. Second, God will provide what you need, dear children of God. And to prove the point, Jesus needs look no further than the birds that were perhaps flying right over his head at that very moment. Verse 24, look at the ravens. Look at them. They, they, don't, they don't sow, they don't reap, they don't build barns. Never seen a raven yet build a barn. And yet God feeds them. 
of how much more value are you than the birds? Jesus is, is arguing here a classic form of argument from the lesser to the greater. If God provides for the birds, he's saying, how much more will he not also provide for you? You're so much more valuable than they are. Actually, there may be more force to Jesus' point than first meets the eye here. This is the only mention in the New Testament of ravens. But it's not the first time that the Bible mentions ravens. Uh, You might remember reading back in Leviticus or in Deuteronomy that ravens were among the birds that the Jews were told to consider unclean. Ravens were detestable birds, to be detested. So Jesus is saying that God provides even for unclean, detestable ravens. And if he provides for unclean, detestable birds, you think he'll provide for his children, for you, Christian? Of course he will. Martin Luther writes, you see, he is making the birds our schoolmasters and teachers. A helpless sparrow become a theologian and preacher to the wisest of men. Whenever you listen to a nightingale, therefore, you are, uh, did I say nightingale? Nightingale, uh, therefore, you are listening to an excellent preacher. It is as if he were saying, I prefer to be in the Lord's kitchen. He has made the heaven and earth, and he himself is the cook and the host. Every day he feeds and nourishes innumerable little birds out of his hand. Reminds me of that little nursery rhyme. Said to Raven to the sparrow, I should really like to know why these anxious human beings rush about and worry so. Said the sparrow to the raven, friend, I think that it must be that they have no heavenly father such as cares for you and me. Actually, the Lord doesn't say the birds have a heavenly father. But he says, you do. It's your heavenly father who feeds the birds. Well, if your father in heaven takes such care of his lesser creatures, how much more will he provide for his own children? I've never seen a, wor- seen a, a worried bird on our backyard feeder, you know, wringing his, his claws, or his feet, whatever, over where his next meal is going to come from. I think we all need to take a lesson from the birds on my feeder. Another lesser to greater argument he offers to, to enforce this point and reinforce it, it involves flowers. Verse 27, consider the lilies, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin, yet I tell you, even Solomon, in all his glory, and Solomon had a lot of it, didn't he? Riches, wealth, why was he well-dressed? Even Solomon, in all his glory, was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass, which is alive in the field today and tomorrow thrown into the oven, how much more will he clothe you, O you of little faith? I know he was talking to his disciples. 
But with that, he reaches across 2,000 years and grabs me right by the collar. Oh, you of little faith. I don't know how many nights of sleep I've had disturbed or lost altogether. How many extra times my heart has beaten and fluttered in my chest. How many hours I'm embarrassed to admit of my life that I have lost. Given over to silly, stupid, impotent, useless fear and anxiety. While the flowers were calling from outside. If they could have, they'd have knocked on the pane. Knock, knock, knock. Hey, hey, look out here. Look at us. Take a glance over here. Luther, again, the flowers stand there and make us blush and become our teachers. Thank you, flowers, who are to be devoured by the cows. (laughs) God has exalted you very highly that you become our masters and our teachers. Let's learn to take a lesson from the birds and from the flowers. Jesus clinches the argument, verse 25, and which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his lifespan? The answer, of course, is, is none of us. But there is an answer to the converse. We can deduct hours from our lives. And we do. Many a life is cut short by the ravages of worry and fear and anxiety. Those spiritual conditions take a physical toll. Worry is a thief, and it steals our time, steals our rest. It steals from us our obedience. Itself, it is disobedience. It steals our hope. Ironically, worry even gives us trouble that we otherwise would not even have known, writes Kierkegaard. Worriers feel every blow that never falls. And they cry over things they will never lose. So don't seek, don't set your heart on food and drink and clothes and house and car and money and all the rest. I know what some of you are thinking at this point. It's not true. It doesn't mean that you can quit working and go to the park and nap the day away. Uh, God's not telling you to be shiftless or thriftless or reckless. None of this excludes legitimate effort and work on your part. But what is prohibited is your concentrated pursuit of things that ultimately God puts on your table even if he uses you as the instrument to do it. So we know what not to pursue because God tells us that he knows what we need and he's going to give us what we need. So second, what to pursue? Verse 31, instead Jesus commands us, seek his kingdom. Right. Seek his kingdom. But what does that mean? Exactly. One of my commentaries says that means a concentration on all that the kingdom involves. Well, okay, that's helpful, but but what exactly? Here it is. The kingdom of God 
is the royal rule of God. The kingdom of God, therefore, extends everywhere that that rule of God is embraced and obeyed. So when Jesus says, seek the kingdom, what he means is, seek the rule of God. Seek that it should be more and more embraced and obeyed. And that, of course, has to begin with you. Seeking the kingdom will mean setting your heart, setting your desire and your life on the law of God. On obeying it and submitting to it inside and out. It means also seeing that others come under that rule as well. That's how the kingdom grows. Bishop Ryle, I think, does as well as any in explaining what he means by seeking the kingdom. We can be said to seek the kingdom of God when we make it the chief business of our lives to secure a place in the number of the saved, of saved people. To have our sins pardoned, our hearts renewed, and ourselves made fit for the inheritance of the saints in light. We do so when we give primary place in our minds to the interests of God's kingdom. When we labor to increase the number of God's subjects. When we strive to maintain God's cause and advance God's glory in the world. I suppose you'll want some specifics. So here are just a few. A person who is seeking the kingdom of God who is one who is pursuing a holy life. A life of praise to God. Who is striving in whatever his or her vocation, her job That Christ is her master. In every relationship, that Christ is the Lord. He or she is working to be a very persuasive witness to the unbeliever. A faithful churchman serving in the church because she is the apple of Christ's eye. A warrior in prayer. A loving parent. A devoted spouse an obedient daughter or son. To live by faith, to overcome temptation, to put on new obedience, and above all, live a life characterized by the love that God has poured into your heart. These are how you seek the kingdom. I guess we might summarize it this way. What we want to seek and pursue is the total lordship and dominion of King Jesus over all of his creation, starting with me. And when we do that, when we devote ourselves not to the anxious pursuit of of things and clothes and stuff, but to God's rule over us and over all, here's the great thing. God turns and adds these things to us anyway. Gives us these things that we need. Seek his kingdom and these things will be added to you as well. When you honor God like that, God has said he will honor you. He said it. 
You seek his kingdom with might and main. You make his rule, his glory, his name, your delight, your desire, the mission of your life. And then you watch as he makes good on his word to give everything to you that you need and what is best for you. I could add story after story after story of saints who have experienced this, seen how God has proven himself true to his word on this point. But time will allow me just one. And actually, it's a, more of a testimony than anything else. If I may tell it to you with no intention of self-applause, but only glory to God. 22 years ago this summer, Debbie and I were just one month away from moving to St. Louis to begin my studies at Covenant Seminary. The plans were made, and the moving boxes were beginning to stack up along the walls of our little apartment, and then one morning, Debbie came to me and said, I'm pregnant. What to do? One job was almost over. The insurance was soon going to run out. And new insurance wouldn't pay for a pre-existing condition. We were just starting seminary, not even there yet. Now what? We prayed, we made calls, we sought advice, we thought and we prayed again. What to do? Well, what could we do? God's calling was evident enough. It was no time to turn back. So we went. And by God's grace, trusted and obeyed. God would have to prove himself true to his word. And he did. A plan was offered at the hospital in St. Louis, a prepaid cash plan to cover the costs of the delivery of a baby. But where would the money come from? We prayed again. I don't remember exactly the chronology of it all. I should have written it down. But uh, one day, not long after that, an envelope arrived in the mailbox. Surprisingly enough, it was addressed from Debbie's former employer in Chicago. What do you think it was? It was a check. A check, not just a check, a check for the exact amount that we needed to pay the hospital. Now, to everyone's absolute amazement, Debbie's boss had decided right then to start profit sharing for the very first time. And what is more, he decided that he'd go back a year and make it retroactive for the previous year. That's how God works. As you Obey him as you set your mind on serving him. He provides. He takes care of the rest. And you have your own testimonies too. I know you do. And wonderful examples, even more wonderful than that. I'd love to hear them. The point is, God is true. He's altogether true to his promises, which means one ounce of worry on your part is a wasted ounce. Thoroughly, completely wasted. Seek his kingdom, and only his kingdom, dear flock, and then relax. 
God will take care of the rest. Amen.